Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Trendle Bed Tales. Today is going to be episode 47 of our regular series, and we are going to be talking about the Passenger Pigeon Podcast or project. But before we do that, give me just a minute here to do a little bit of housekeeping. To just remind you, as always, we've got a chat room open, so if you uh, want to ask a question or make a comment, you can always do it there. And if you're out and about and you want to listen to the show or you have a question or a comment to make about this one, you can call in either at 714-242-5253, that's 714-242-5253, or toll-free 1-877-877. Six three three nine three eight nine. That's toll free one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. And as a reminder, if you want to catch past episodes, you can do that either by streaming directly from the web page, or you can download them for free from iTunes by looking under the podcast or from the link on both my blog and my website. So uh, I also want to let people know that our next upcoming episode is going to be here pretty quick. We're going to have another episode on the 21st, and I'm going to be talking with Kathleen Wall, the poster girl for Thanksgiving. She works at Plymouth Plantation, where the pilgrims uh, were from, and I think that will be a really fun episode, too, to get us all in the spirit of Thanksgiving coming a little bit early this year. And I think that's about all the housekeeping we had. So let's go ahead and bring on our guest. Kyle, welcome to Trundle Bed Tales. Thank you, Sarah. It's good to be here. Well, I was very glad that we could get you on. Uh, I've heard Kyle speak on uh, the Passenger Pigeon Project at a conference earlier this year, and I was really impressed. So I was very glad that I could help spread the news because I think it is just a fascinating project. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself first, Kyle? Sure. Um, My name is Kyle Bagnall. I'm manager of historical programs at Chippewa Nature Center in Midland, Michigan, about halfway up the state. So for um, the last 18-plus years, I've um, worked here and taught people different ways how people and nature are interconnected today and always. So this passenger pigeon project um, really struck a chord with me because I've also been a bird watcher uh, since I was 10 years old. So for like 30 years, I've been keeping my bird list and, and always been fascinated with birds. So to tie that interest in with my um, my historical profession and having both be so you know interconnected was just a great opportunity. Um, and next year is going to be an exciting year with this project. Well, I think it will be too. All right, since you mentioned it, how many birds are you up to? Do you know? No. <laughs> Oh, gosh, not off the top of my head. I'd have to look up my, pull up my list. 
to, to tell you for sure. But um, and I've been to mostly in the United States. I've been to Costa Rica and to Sweden, and and uh, I've just enjoyed even if it's a sparrow in the backyard. I've always just enjoyed so many different birds over the years. Yeah. They sweat, They fly at your head, the barn swallows. That's what <laughs> yeah, I don't like. Okay. <laughs> All right. But, yes, birds are important. They're really a, an important part of farm life, too. That was one of the first things I remember my great-grandmother talking to me about was, was the birds and which ones were the songbirds, and you especially let them alone. No, so yes. So let's keep <laughs> Let's get on to the, the passenger pigeons. If people don't know, what exactly was a passenger pigeon? Well, a passenger pigeon was a type of pigeon that you would find in the United States. So if you looked at it, you would recognize that it's got the distinctive shape. It had a long tail. Um, it was a large pigeon. It was the largest pigeon that we had. Um, it only existed in the United States, um, pretty much east of the Rocky Mountains. But from there, all the way from Hudson's Bay in the north, uh, all the way to the southern United States. And um, it was also a very colorful bird. Um, even pigeons you see in the in the city has some of that uh, iridescent sheen to them and so forth. But um, it's fun to kind of look at some of the historical um, quotes and things like that, and we probably will do that over the next hour here. And um, I can share a little bit of um, a history of North American birds from 1874 that described the bird. We can't look at it today, of course, it's because it's been extinct for 100 years, so we have to kind of look at these type of accounts and also mounts and museums and so forth. But it says, a tail with 12 feathers, uh, upper parts generally, including the sides of body, head and neck, and the chin, blue. Beneath purple, brownish red, fading behind into a violet tint, under tail coverts bluish white, sides and back of neck richly glossed with metallic golden violet or reddish purple. So that's a, a portion of the description, and I just thought even that, you know, describes the color, the sheen, the beauty of these simple birds that were innumerable, you know, yet um, and kind of underappreciated in many ways by folks, but that they were a beautiful bird and a big part of our landscape. And of course, the it females like were. Oh, course, the females were more no, dull than the males. You know, just like most species, they had to sit on the nest and be more camouflaged and so forth. But they're about 17 inches long total. So that's kind of ironic because a lot of the the feathers, when people were looking for them, were for the women, and the the female, the birds, were, weren't as shiny. That's, that's mm. interesting. Yeah. Okay. So so how did the passenger pigeon get its name? Well, it got its name from its uh, habits of flying from place to place in huge flocks. So the first European um, explorers and missionaries and so forth that came uh, would see these huge, huge flocks of birds, and they would be um, in one spot, and then they would all travel to another spot and uh, want, kind of wandering around, kind of a, a um, migratory wanderer, uh, if you will. Um, there's some really neat um, explorations of the nomenclature of, of the whole thing, but it basically means wanderer from place to place, the Latin name. Ecopistes migratorius. So migratorius, the uh -huh. wanderer. <clears throat> uh, one Boy, fun, that, uh, that would be a great name for a character in something, the yeah, wanderer. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> There's a 
There's a great um, uh, another little story or quote, if you will, from um, from 1848. Uh, someone was writing a book about um, North American birds, in fact, game birds of North America. Uh, John Frost was was uh, not very enamored with this name passenger pigeon or the Latin name because he said that um, every pigeon is known to an extent to be migratory. So he said the swarm pigeon, the flood pigeon, or even the deluge pigeon would be a more appropriate (laughs) appellation. For their weight of their numbers break down the forest with scarcely less havoc than if the stream of the Mississippi were poured upon it. So the effect of these birds, the magnitude of these birds was so overwhelming that people had a hard time using words to describe what they were actually seeing. Okay, now, um, uh, that passenger pigeon kind of reminds you of carrier pigeon. Were these the same birds that were used to carry messages in World War One? Yeah, a lot of people ask that, but it is not the same bird. Um, first of all, the passenger pigeon um, species went extinct in 1914, so really before the war. And um, second, the Carrier pigeon is actually a type of a rock pigeon or kind of a domesticated pigeon that you would normally see in a in a city or something like that. And those were specially trained and um, and used, especially to fly in one direction. They would you'd tie the message to the leg, and the pigeon knew to fly home. You know, homing pigeons, another name for those carrier mm-hmm. pigeons. So um, they flew around from place to place, but they're a different species altogether. Okay. So you you were talking about the numbers, uh, sort of the descriptive numbers of, of the size of these flocks, but do we have any idea just how big they were, what the uh, numbers were, or how big an area they would take if they were at rest? Um, millions or even billions of birds are described in these flocks. Um, it was literally the uh, most abundant bird in North America and probably the most abundant bird in the entire world. Um, modern estimates, you know, looking back at the documentation and so forth, estimate that in total there was a, probably a population between three and five billion of these birds. And uh, sometimes the wow. flocks would literally um, go in one continuous stream for three days and be so thick they would block out the sun. So it's it's really a phenomenon that we can hardly imagine today because it's been gone for so long and there's really not a modern comparison to... Um, to look at. So, you know, like the old virgin forest that used to stand here, we we look around and see smaller trees. You can't really picture what a passenger pigeon uh, flock would be like because because they're gone. Um, they said, too, that there was up to about 40% of the U.S. Uh, population of birds were passenger pigeons. So we're talking just a huge number uh, of these birds. Of course, the entire population wouldn't be in one flock alone, um, and there were different flocks you know, throughout the United States, um, like on the East Coast, um, here in Kentucky, and up into the Midwest, into Michigan and Minnesota, and Wisconsin was another um, area that they were very common. And um, Okay. <laughs> oh. All right. So uh, you talked about about the they were, they were a huge flock. Were there multiple flocks, or was it just all the birds that there were were in one big flock? Yeah, I was starting to describe a little bit of that when you were gone. Okay. <laughs> um, no, they were uh, there were multiple flocks um, throughout the United States, especially um, the Midwest was especially a good area for them, um, uh, from Kentucky and 
parts south all the way up through Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin. But then along the east coast, there were flocks as well. Um, you know, as people got there first, however, the hunting pressure was the most um, out east at first. So those started dwindling in earlier years than we had out west here. But um, definitely more than just one giant flock, even though the flocks were large in most cases. Uh, so you had you'd mentioned earlier that they um, migrated. Was uh, did they just have a regular north-south pattern, or did they kind of just move around as they used up food in the area? Or do we know much about that? Um, everything that's uh, written really talks about the fact that they weren't dependent solely on the weather for their migration. Um, a bit different than the typical north-south um, pattern that you might imagine. There were accounts of them being up at Hudson's Bay area in as late as like December and things like that. And um, you know, most songbirds, for example, would migrate way earlier than that uh, to go to f- uh, further south in the United States. Because the flock was so big, they really had to go where they had a food source. So if you know a flock would descend upon an area and they would, um, <clears throat> in fairly short order, eat the amount of food that they was available in that region, and when it was gone, they had to move on. Um, so <clears throat> around the nesting grounds, you know, they may stay for the longest period of time, but but they moved around from place to place, um, especially following the food source. <clears throat> Yeah, you you mentioned how big a bird it was, uh, and that they moved around a lot. Could, were they very fast? Could they? Uh, how fast could they fly? Yeah, that's one uh, one reason they were able to um, to be so successful is because they could fly so fast and they could go great distances to to search out food. Um, they were estimated to fly about sixty miles an hour. So if you're Whoa. driving down your typical you know two lane country road and going about sixty miles an hour. Uh, that's about how the passenger pigeons, um, how fast they could fly. They were said that there was um, um, rice found from the um, the rice paddies out in the southeast um, in pigeons that were hunted up in New England or something further north, and uh, it just must have you know taken one or two days for them to get to that um, great distance. You know, flying that fast, they were able to do things like that. Well, that must have been even more impressive for people seeing these flocks than if they if they flew that speed very often because, I mean, uh, almost up to the end of the 19th century, people weren't going that fast except maybe by yeah. train and even then not. So it would have really been like whizzing by you. It's very true. And, you know, there's really... Um neat descriptions of the sound of this you know you're right people weren't used to um to the noise and um and the speed and and so forth so a lot of times when a a huge flock was first approaching uh people would think it was like a thunderstorm or tornado approaching because they're you know wings and a, a bird like this would be relatively noisy it's not like an owl you know flying silently in fact, um, Alexander Wilson, the father of American ornithology, described when he um, he heard a flock of pigeons uh, coming on this cabin when he was down in Kentucky. He said um, he was talking with the people indoors and was suddenly struck with astonishment at a loud rushing roar, succeeded by instant Ooh. darkness, which on the first moment I took for a tornado about to overwhelm the house. Uh, the people observing my surprise coolly said, it is only the pigeons. And then he ran outside and he saw this huge flock of pigeons come and swoop up and fly over the house and the river and disappear behind the mountain. So it was pretty remarkable to hear accounts like that. 
And, and a lot of times, even with these scientific folks, you saw again and again, uh, they assured their readers that what they were about to write is true and had been seen by other credible people because the account seemed so fantastical with the, the yeah. size of the flocks and the numbers and the effect uh, it had on them. It's pretty amazing. Well, and for the settlers that were in the cabin to to react like that, it must have happened on a fairly regular basis, so they knew what it was. I mean, that... Yeah, it was a part of everyday life, you know, again, that, you know, it's so so not a part of our everyday life that it's hard to really imagine it. Well, uh, you moved, you mentioned them having to move on because of foodstuffs. What, what did they eat? Um, the primary two things that they ate were acorns and beech nuts. And um, it was said that they could just swallow the acorns whole. And in fact, sometimes when people would hunt a passenger pigeon, they would shake it upside down and uh, like up to 14 full acorns would fall out of their uh, their stomach and their you know crops that they where they digest them. And um so and then the beech nuts were similar and these two hardwood species uh you know especially being found in in our region I'm in Michigan kind of the whole Midwest area especially um had a lot of these very old large forests that were abundant in these types of um natural food source or mast if you will. So um, the pigeons moved where the food source was most abundant. So um, a lot of these trees don't produce an equally abundant crop every year. It's like every other year or every third year where they'll have a really bumper crop of, of acorns, and people may notice that you know, as they're walking through the woods or if you have an oak tree in your yard or something like that. So, so that's when the pigeons would descend on a certain area uh, based on what their food was. Well, if, if that's the case... And, you know, the acorns and the beech nuts are, are part of how the trees reproduce. Did they affect the percentages of trees that were grown, or has anybody looked at that? Uh, they would certainly affect the um, the area around where they would, um, they would settle, especially to nest, uh, also just to eat. But um, the, the pigeons themselves were in such huge flocks, and... Um, and the numbers that would descend on like a given tree or something, they were so heavy because we're talking hundreds and even thousands of birds on on uh, single uh, branches and trees. They would actually break huge limbs out of the trees, so it was not safe to walk in a pigeon nesting because occasionally just a large limb would come crashing out of the tree simply because of the weight of the pigeons on it, and um, their dung that would um, that would fall would would be on the ground up to several inches in depth. So obviously that would um, wow. affect the, the forest to a great deal. In fact, it was said that um, it um, an area of acres or hundreds of acres, even thousands of acres, would be would be decimated as if, um, you know, lumbermen come through and cut them all because the trees would, you know, not survive. So basically it was kind of a, a process of renewal for the forest, I think, as well, because you know, just like if a wildfire you know goes through an area, uh, what is left, you know, you get the um, the kind of rich nutrients in the soil and the and the underbrush burned off and so forth. When the pigeons would land in an area and they would, you know, kill off some trees, then it would encourage new growth and and new species, and um, it's this kind of forest cleaning itself process. And the pigeons were definitely part of that. Um, we can't really know to what extent how it all works because everything is so interconnected and, you know, what um, 
what did their loss do to other species? Um, how did it affect, you know, the forest and the other plants and animals? And um, more research to be done for sure. But um, because they're not here, it's it's got to be teased out from the um, available evidence. Okay. Well, did since uh, we talked about the the pigeons being, you know, part of the, the life of the settlers, did they affect the crops grown by them? Yeah, yeah a lot. Um, is in some cases it was a, a good effect, and in other cases they cursed the pigeons for coming. Um, for example, like especially in the you know early days of um, of New England settlement, um, some of the uh, like John Winthrop of the Massachusetts Bay Colony wrote uh, in several cases how um, the birds. Um, in one case, the birds descended on uh, their flock or on their on their crops just when they were about to uh, to harvest them. In fact, in, uh, in 1648, uh, he wrote, the month when their first harvest was near had in, the pigeons came, um, whoop, let me back up, that's the year that they came after the crop was done, 1634. So um, they came and uh, destroyed the crop entirely, and um, they weren't able to, to gather what they had planted because the pigeons came and they... Um, and they, you know, ate everything, and then they, you know, and then they left, and they were, they had a very um, hard winter because they had lost so much of their crop. But then a few years later, they had just gathered the crop in, and the pigeons came, and they were able to, you know, hunt the pigeons, and they were, they were an additional food source in addition to their crops. So, if you were a farmer, you did not want the pigeons to land on your field because they would obviously eat every, you know, scrap of, of, uh, of grain that would be there. Um, so it definitely affected um, different things, for sure. Okay, well, were were these pigeons hard to catch or kill? I mean, you're talking about such big numbers of them. I would think that um, they it would be fairly easy, was it? It was fairly easy. In fact, some of the um, the accounts of hunting them are just you know, mind-boggling because they're so so abundant. You know, if they were, for example, flying over, all you had to do was you know, shoot in the air and you would have them tumbling out of the sky. Um, some people even talked about using clubs and reaching up as a flock would fly over and clubbing them out of the sky if they flew low enough. Now, when they were perched or if they were nesting, uh, people would use long poles and they would reach up and they would knock the nests out of the trees. Um, that was also seen as desirable because the young birds or the squabs had the most fat on them and that they were the tastiest and um, sometimes even the fat itself was used and they would render it down and use it for um, basically like lard and um, they would also chop trees down and knock the you know all the birds that were in a tree they would um, have sulfur pots they would put underneath the trees and they would asphyxiate the birds and they would plop out of the out of the trees they would also um bait certain areas, especially like natural salt licks. The pigeons were attracted to salt and um they would um they would salt an area and um they would entice pigeons to come with something called a stool pigeon. So you've heard that word, we oh. get many uh words from from the passenger pigeon. The stool pigeon was on a stool. It was on this there was a long pole with a metal disc at the end and the pigeon was tied to that, its leg was tied to that. But it was allowed to flutter up and um, kind of announce its presence, and then f- and then it would fly back down and land on the stool. And this, they would, you know, 
move the stick and encourage it to flutter up again and again. And pigeons flying over would see this bird down there and say, hey, what's going on? And they would land and they would find this area that had been salted or baited and <clears throat> then more of them would come and more of them would come. And when the he said when the ground was blue with pigeons because their backs looked blue, they would spring these nets over them. So these long nets that would be all along the side of the salted area would be um, unlike uh, saplings or poles that were bent back. And then when they when they pulled the trigger, the pole would whip up, the net would go over the flock, and they would capture you know 800 or 1,000 birds at once sometimes um, in these huge oh, wow. nets. And then they would run out there and they'd cut off all their heads and stick them into a barrel and and um, they would process them and, and ship them out. So pretty so remarkable. If they were taking, yeah, if they were taking that many birds at a time, what were some of the purposes that, that the birds were used for? The birds were used for many different things. Um, first of all, they were they were good eating. So the, the pigeons were... Um, there's lots of different recipes. Pigeon pie, I'm sure you've you know, heard of that, even if you haven't eaten pigeon pie. Uh, pigeon stew, uh, you take the breasts and wrap them in bacon and, and bake them uh, and fry them, you know, things like that. Um, the fat from the pigeons was used, especially for the squabs. There's accounts of, um, barrels, of barrels and barrels and barrels of fat put on barges in, the, um, in Pennsylvania and sent down the river um, and it was it was seen as uh, being uh, sweeter than uh, like uh, lard, and uh, it would last a very long time as well. It had good shelf life, so it was a, a very good um, food resource. Um, they also stuck pigeons in um, in barrels. Like if you wanted to uh, go on a ship voyage, you might stick them in a, a barrel and uh, put a layer of lard or fat on the top to seal it off, and you'd have kind of your your meat uh, preserved in there. They would also use the feathers. Um, there's pigeon picking bees. You've heard of a quilting bee or a, a corn shucking bee. Here's a pigeon picking bee, where they would hunt pigeons, and then folks from all around would come and they would they would pluck the pigeons. Usually, what would happen is um, you'd all descend on one a farmer's um, homestead, for example. Uh, the pigeons you plucked, you got to keep the pigeons. The farmer kept the the feathers, and there's one great account where um, they the family ended up with three fine feather beds, and, um, and of course everyone had all the pigeons that they that they could eat. So a pigeon picking bee, something new. And were then the, um, um, feathers, were the feathers used for like hats and that sort of thing too? Because you'd mentioned they were so brightly colored. You know, I imagine they were used to some degree for that. I think the the big fashion in that. Um, you know, continued after the, this bird was gone, and um, in some of the early laws against um, destruction or destroying um, songbirds and things, for example, were passed um, because people saw the demise of the pigeon and um, and they wanted to protect other birds. But if you had something like another extinct species, the Carolina parakeet, this gorgeously brilliant, colorful bird, um, <clears throat> something like that would have often been used as well. Uh, the pigeons themselves were. Um, Although they were beautiful, they were also seen kind of as a trash bird because they were so abundantly common. Um, you know, it's uh, they were kind of undervalued as a as a living creature and just valued as you know something to uh, for wholesale slaughter. To be honest, um, just remarkable the numbers of 
of birds that were taken for for that and for in, in live birds for things like uh, target practice and things like that. Now, uh, I think maybe you better explain that a little bit because I'm sure most people do not realize the, the whole concept of trap shooting and what it originally came from. Yeah, um, I mean, the reason we have something called a clay pigeon, if you think about it, was because originally they weren't using, they were using real pigeons. So um, what would happen is, especially in the 19th um, century, starting in the um, kind of around 1820s, trap shooting of pigeons became really popular. And this whole industry kind of developed uh, where people would capture live pigeons, they would um, put them in coops or cages, and, and they would have these huge competitions where um, they would spring open a cage, the bird would fly out, and, and people would you know, shoot at them to see how many they could get in a single um, event or tournament. Uh, the whole industry was absolutely crazy when you really start getting into it. You see all these special cages that are designed to, to flip open and scare the bird out. Um, sometimes the birds didn't want to fly out, so these agitators or these um, um, wooden cats were developed where they would open their cage and then they would pull a little string and this fake wooden cat would jump up and scare the pigeon out. Um, the pigeon shooting matches, um, the, the champion of all time was Captain Adam H. Bogardus. He shot um, 500 passenger pigeons in 528 minutes while loading his own gun. That was his record. And um, he traveled with uh, Buffalo Bill Cody and Wild West Show. He was a champion um, uh, marksman. Uh, in one tournament alone in, at Coney Island in New York in 1881, 20,000 birds were shot. So it was you know, very popular happening all over the country. I've done a lot of um, <clears throat> research about Michigan, and uh, there's Michigan tournaments. There's the champions challenging each other to special tournaments, and people would accept their challenge and travel great distances. And um, So these pigeon shooting tournaments were, were very popular. So besides taking, uh, actually killing the, the pigeons in the field and processing them there, they were also capturing them live to send them back. So they could exactly. use them in these shooting different places. Exactly. In fact, um, <laughs> you know, large numbers of thousands upon thousands were put on, uh, in special cages and put in, in cars, railroad cars and, and shipped off to be used in these tournaments um, throughout you know, North America, throughout the United States in particular. In fact, the cruelty well, of that any... sport, of the cruelty of that sport, actually kind of, kind of partially turned the tide against people wanting to kill pigeons. Um, the founder of the Preve the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals (ASPCA), his name was Henry Berg. He was a New York guy, and he sponsored an anti-pigeon bill, uh, which was passed by the state of New York in 1881. So um, he was, you know. It was not just eating them or, or something like that. It was this sport that kind of looked and was very cruel that kind of finally started to turn public opinion against it, you know, after it was really too late to save the species. Well, it just sounds hor horrific talking about it. I mean, I knew uh, there was trap shooting at the Isaac Walton League where my grandfather was a member when I was a kid, and it never occurred to me where any of these terms came from. Though if you think about it, I guess you can kind of see how it goes back to the British tradition of you know, sending the dogs out to make the birds jump up. But I, I think those were yeah. at least 
partially used for eating, but it just sounds horrible. But this was even a, an Olympic sport at one time, wasn't it? Yeah, the 1900 Olympics in Paris, uh, pigeon shooting was a uh, was a medal sport. It was the only uh, time that it was a medal sport in the Olympics, but um, but it was uh, was used and was popular at that time. Okay, well, you'd you'd mentioned that you know so many of the birds uh, were taken out by either the the capturing them live for the sport or for processing them in the field. Was there anything? else uh, that people were doing that kind of depressed the population? Hey, one huge thing we know of for sure is the logging that was taking place. And, um, you know, that was, you know, the the forests of the east were kind of the first to fall, like the forests of Maine and so forth, especially the pine forests. And then as the 19th century progressed and the lumbering operations moved west, you know, to Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin, and... Um, and just the technology advancements um, grew and grew, and Michigan's forests were at first forecasted to last 500 years, but in, in effect, in 50 years, the state was nearly clear-cut, uh, very close to it. So you've got you know, the, the main food source of these pigeons being you know, mostly massed from trees, and then you've got this highly efficient kind of modern um, lumbering operation that kept cutting trees faster and faster. So that must have had a quite a large impact on, on the species. Another thing that we don't know very much that they're trying to do some studying on is what role some sort of disease might have played, um, if other you know, domestic species or some kind of introduced um, diseases might have helped um, crash their population. But for certain, when you had especially market hunters going into a, a nesting area and, and taking you know, hundreds of thousands of birds at the same time you're cutting their you know nesting area um of all trees you know it's it's kind of a recipe for doom so to speak for for a species like that so uh, did did modern uh technology do anything else to affect the destruction of the pigeon especially when they were getting in you know those kind of more um smaller flocks and kind of uh, not being just everywhere anymore well, the, the, probably the biggest piece of modern technology that did was the railroad because um, these uh, people would kind of scout out where pigeon nestings would take place in particular or where the huge flocks were flying to uh, in the telegraph. So um, let's say it was known that p the pigeons were going to nest in Petoskey, Michigan, you know, one of the, the last grand nesting of passenger pigeons in the world was in 1878 in Petoskey, Michigan. So the telegraph announcements went out. People hopped on the trains, the, you know, the market hunters, and they shot up there. And then you had, you know, 500 pigeoners, so to, um, pigeon hunters, um, descending on an area um, from a large uh, distance away. There's um, the only record of trying to stop a passenger pigeon hunt in, in progress was uh, in, in Petoskey in 1878. And the uh, the men who went up from Bay City, basically three men, uh, they scoured the hotel registers to find where the pigeoners were from. And they were from as far away as Texas, uh, all the way around the East Coast, of course, throughout the Midwest, kind of, you know, 10 or 15 states, you know, and they all hopped on the train to, to get over to Michigan. So so that's, that is a huge part of, it just became easier and easier to, to do the hunting and to 
not just the mechanics of the actual hunt, but just transportation and so forth, too. Did passenger pigeons reproduce in great numbers? Um, they did if they were allowed to, to nest, you know, naturally. The the flock itself, you know, most most nests would have one or two birds in it. And um, if the flock is huge and, and allowed to, to reproduce, um, they could, you know, potentially could double their population in a year if each of them had, you know, two um, nestlings, for example. But... Um, their nests were also sloppily built, and they were kind of, you know, just some sticks kind of thrown together on a branch. So they weren't particularly studious nesters, but um, they were pretty successful if left in their wild state. It, it must have been obvious that the pigeon populations were starting to dwindle. That was one of the things that, that has always kind of bothered me about this story. Did they make any attempt to breed them in captivity? I mean, you know it's coming down. I would think they would have tried something. Did they? Yeah, you know, the the stories of that remind me a lot of the logging days. Um, the um, the pigeon numbers stayed pretty high until very close to the end when the population crashed suddenly. Like even um, some of the populations out east, you know, they weren't as they weren't as high uh, for a while because they had hunted them there for so long. But everyone knew that there were you know billions of pigeons in the Midwest, and you know, and they would last forever. Um, now that's um, when that finally started to um, to change, and people kind of it dawned on people that they should try to breed them in captivity. Uh, a couple of um, kind of two main flocks were were started um, to um, to try this captive captive breeding program. Um, one was um, near Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, a man named David Whitaker obtained uh, two pairs of pigeons from a Native American in 1888 and um, was able to get one, one of those pairs to breed and to, um, to rear young, so the flock grew to about 15. And um, in 1896, the University of Chicago got in. They, they got seven of those birds, and, and they, 1896 is, um, is way after kind of the, the major nestings had taken place. You're talking about scattered birds at this point, in very small flocks. So they looked and looked to find other birds to introduce into the flock to prevent inbreeding, but um, they really couldn't find uh, what they were looking for. Um, and the last of those died in 1909. Now, if you go online, you can look. Um, I think it's the um, University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, or something like that, um, has photographs that were taken, a series of photographs that were taken of that Chicago flock that are some of the best um, passenger pigeon in captivity photos that you're able to see anywhere, um, even one sitting on a nest and, and a young one and you know, all kinds of things. Then the other main flock was in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Zoo, or Cincinnati Zoological Gardens. That was also kind of a, a flock that was started fairly early in like the um, late 1870s, and, and it was pretty large too, about 20 birds by 1881, but as time went on, their you know their breeding stock dwindled. They they didn't have any new uh, blood, so to speak, or genetics to to introduce into the flock. So that is finally where the last passenger pigeon died in the Cincinnati Zoo uh, in 1914. 
Well, I want to get back to her in just a minute, but but mm-hmm. first, uh, what a, there were some protests as they went along, and one of the most interesting and strange ones were done by uh, Edward Booth, and uh, Kyle, did you hear me? I heard part of it. You were talking oh, about the sorry. protest, so I can I can pick it up from yeah. there. So yeah, okay. Edwin Booth, um, you know the person who, uh, uh, or John Wilkes Booth, you know assassinated um, President Lincoln. Um, his father, Junius Brutus Booth, um, uh, had was also an actor, and uh, you know it was a very um, acting family. And he staged a protest quite early that was very bizarre. Um, he was in. Um, the Louisville, Kentucky area, and he was doing um, Shakespeare. He was in a local production there. And at the time, there was a huge pigeon hunting um, going on because there was a nesting uh, in the area. So he decided that um, he was going to stage a funeral for these pigeons, uh, buy a lot in the local cemetery, and parade them through the town and um, and kind of show his disdain for this this process and the account is uh, recalled um, by the minister that he tried to um, work with to stage this this mock funeral. And he was a Unitarian named James Freeman Clark. And later in life, he wrote about this, and he obviously could remember the event very well because it was so unusual. Um, he had just moved out there. Unitarians are, were based in Boston, and he went to Divinity School out east and, and came to the west to Louisville, Kentucky, and got this this knock on his hotel room door, and it was um, from Mr. Booth, and um, he um, asked if he may assist him to to find a place of interment for his friends in the churchyard, and um, he was very curious about this odd note about these friends that needed to be interred, so he, he went to the hotel where Mr. Booth was staying, and uh, this very unusual encounter took place where um, they sat, they talked. Mr. Booth read at length this poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, talked about vegetarianism, all kinds of unusual things. And uh, we kind of refused to answer directly these questions that this minister had about the deceased. And, uh, in fact, he said, you know, are you related? Are they relatives to you? And he said they're they're very distant relatives. So he finally took him into the other room, and he saw a, a bushel of wild pigeons lying there dead in the corner. And um, and Booth mourned over the pigeons, and, and the minister was completely taken aback and, and did not participate in this in this funeral. And he left, and Mr. Booth actually went through his uh, with his plan and and maintained his his um, kind of unusual protest in Louisville, Kentucky, in 1834. Um, so that was one of the earlier and more flamboyant accounts you'll find of a of a protest. In fact, a play has been written about this particular uh, event uh, by some folks in Chicago, and you can actually find it on uh, online on YouTube. Um, and it's one of the ways that people can get involved. If you, um, and we could talk about how uh, other organizations can get in, involved. But it was—it's called the Savage Passengers. This play that uh, that recounts this the strange story of passenger pigeon protest. 
Uh, it's just such an interesting far out story. I wanted to make sure that we got that in. But um, let's kind of get back to where we were in the timeline. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Martha. All right, so so Martha was the last passenger pigeon to remain in the Cincinnati flock in, in the Cincinnati Zoo. Um, she was about 20 years old uh, when she died. She was found at the bottom of her cage uh, on September 1st, 1914. And um, you know, this is a very unusual case when you know where the exact you know last you know individual of a species that goes extinct. Um, you know when and where it happened. Um, you know, she for some time she'd been quite famous. She had this you know large coop enclosure, and and people knew she was the last passenger pigeon. So the Smithsonian Institution had already said that they wanted um, her remains after she she passed away. So um, so after she did die at the Cincinnati Zoo, she was shipped over to the Smithsonian. So what happened to her after she died? That wasn't really the end of the story. No, it's not. They uh, they had a special railroad car. They they encased her body in a 300-pound block of ice. This is before modern refrigeration, and, and they shipped her over to the Smithsonian, where she was um, she was examined and stuffed. Her um, her internal organs were put in jars and put in the you know, wet collections, and then she was um, on display at the Smithsonian. Um, Nelson Wood was a very famous taxidermist of that time period, and he um, he did the taxidermy on her and many other Smithsonian um, mounts of the time. And um, she was on display through the early 1950s, and then from 1956 to 1999, she was on a Birds of the World exhibit at the Smithsonian. Um, she's been to San Diego once and the Cincinnati Zoo, and they um, dedicated a building in her honor in 1974. And she's not currently on exhibit at the moment, but there's plans to exhibit her next year for the 100th anniversary uh, of her death and the extinction of the species. Well, I hope so. I think it would be, uh, well, you hate to say it would be fun to go look at a dead bird, but you hear so much yeah. about her, it would be really nice to, to go and, and uh, pay her a visit. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, there have been lots of extinctions over the years, including the, the recent loss of the black rhino, for example. But for some reason, the passenger pigeon has really taken hold of people's imaginations. It's sort of like the poster child of extinct species. Why do you think that is? Um, there's, the stories of them are so fantastical. There were so many. Man, I think it's often hard for us to, to wrap our minds around how something that was so abundant um, you know, could become gone, you know, and so extinct. Um, you know, something like, especially in North America, you know, I don't know if people are as fascinated with her as or the species, you know, in Europe as, as we may be over here, but something like the black rhino seems far away, you know, it seems like there were fewer of them, you know, it's kind of a more distant, or or even sharks or, you know, there's a lot of problems right now with shark fin soup, you know, decimating shark populations, but they're in the depths of the oceans and they're far away. And, and these stories were literally in our backyards um, throughout all of eastern North America in particular. And the numbers are just so enormous. So there's some, uh, for a long time historically, people couldn't believe that the bird was gone. They thought that they must have uh, flown to Cuba or, I mean, there are all kinds of crazy stories, all flown out to sea and perished 
they somehow got confused and just went out to sea and basically committed suicide. People couldn't believe it. They they were in denial. So the hope that we could bring something like that back, you know, I think fascinates people. And, and there are many mounts um, or specimens uh, in different collections and museums. So there may be some viable DNA. You know, it's probably easier to get it from that than it would be from a mastodon from 10,000 years ago, for example, or a mammoth. Um, so I think that's part of those, you know, different things play into uh, why people are interested in, in this cloning technology and trying to bring them back. So how did the year-long celebration of the passenger pigeon come about? Well, um, particularly from this guy named Joel Greenberg, um, who um, lives in the Chicago area. Um, again, a, a pretty much a lifelong birder. Um, he's written several books on uh, wild Chicago and kind of the ecosystems and places you can visit in the Chicago area. And the passenger pigeon had always fascinated him. You know, like me, you know, as a little kid growing up, you see the little, well, we used to see the little um, picture in the book with the word extinct by it, you know, a little passenger pigeon. And, um, and you always kind of wonder about, you know, the story and, and everything else. So Joel decided to start researching for a book. You know, he's written other books and thought, you know, the, the last major work of this was written more than 50 years ago. You know, there had to be more stories to tell. So as he got further into it, he really understood that there was more to it than just one little project. So spawned off of that, um, he created something called Project Passenger Pigeon. It's in cooperation with the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum, um, part of the um, Chicago Academy of Sciences. And um, they, with their support, um, he's developed this collaborative project for, for um, uh, nearly 200 institutions throughout the United States in particular um, have agreed to do something um, as a partner in this project throughout the next year. So here at Chippewa Nature Center, we're going to have um, an exhibit, um, print out some exhibit panels we can talk about how people can get involved um have programs i've developed a one-hour presentation i'm going to be going around michigan and and talking about that there's also a movie that is um david Murzak, a um, well-known documentary um, um filmmaker is uh producing a movie which will uh, hopefully be shown on a national scale and, uh, and really get the word out. There's going to be very nice um, computer animations in it, uh, exploring the historic story, and also exploring the fact that modern species still need conservation. You know, even if something is incredibly common, like that pigeon you see in the city or the sparrows at your bird feeder, we can't take for granted that that will always be here. You know, for the passenger pigeon can go extinct. You know, it's a lesson we need to remember that anything can. So. So there are literally like art exhibitions and um, there's a symphony that was written about passenger pigeons by um, the uh, father of American symphonies and that's being performed in several places and and school programs and plays and I mean you name it. So next year you can probably look around, especially if you go on the project website, which we can talk about, and you can find an activity going on near you as part of this project. Um, if a library or museum or school wants to get involved, is, is it too late or can they still sign up to do something? No, it is not too late at all. In fact, the, the main source of connection with uh, the world is the website that um, we've developed. And, and I've been serving as the coordinator for Michigan for this, for this project for the past few years. PassengerPigeon.org 
if you go into that, um, there's a Get Involved tab, and there's a long list of things that you can you can do. There's um, the University of Michigan has created this series of nine full-size exhibit panels that uh, on here is a PDF. You can download those and you can print them uh, at your local printer, or you know, we have a a uh, large format printer here at the Nature Center, and we printed full size. So you can create your own exhibit based on these U of M um, panels. There's there's things like a PowerPoint presentation. There's a origami passenger pigeon craft idea. Um, there's several speakers. Um, in fact, they list 17 experts in 13 states where there's a speakers bureau. You can get someone to come in. Um, the play I mentioned a little. There's art exhibitions. There's also um, curriculum. From uh, for K to 12 students, especially elementary students, and they're and they're available on this website. There's also several traveling exhibitions. So Michigan State University is one of those that's pre preparing a um, an exhibit at their own place, and also a traveling exhibit that you can um, you can sign on and rent out, and um, that will be available um, through their um, through their website and their process uh, in the coming year. And of course, the movie and, and and the book and all of that. All you have to do is, you know, um, click the contact us button, saying my library, nature center, history museum um, wants to somehow be involved. Maybe we have a mount, or we have, um, you know, kids who are interested, and we want to do a program. You know, it can be anything. Uh, it doesn't have to be large. It can be, you know, anything small. But if if you say that you'd like to be involved. Um, you're listed on uh, the project website as kind of a, a partner. Your programs are listed on the events calendar, which is currently in process of being built, and some of the things are on there now. And um, it's a larger collaborative project than I think I've ever seen with museums, nature centers, libraries, um, art institutions of all different kinds, just all agreeing to be a part of this in some way. It's a really neat project, a very good opportunity. Well, it certainly sounds like it. And uh, if people also want to kind of keep track of the news, there's a, a Facebook page, correct? Passenger Pigeon Project. There is Project. a Facebook page. Yep. I should have mentioned that as well. It's Project Passenger Pigeon uh, Facebook page. Yeah. Yep. And so make sure you like that. And for the documentary, do you want us to do you want people to contact their uh, uh, PBS station and suggest this might be a good thing for them to show? Um, that would probably be a good idea. I don't know the exact format that the um, the documentary is going to um, be aired uh, on a national basis. Um, I did make some inquiries and were able to um, get it directly here uh, at the Nature Center next year, and there'll be you know some associated fee with that, maybe a few hundred dollars or something for the rights or something like that. But uh, as far as uh, the larger um, you know PBS stations and so forth, I would go ahead and and click that Contact Us button, send an email to the project, and Joel can answer those questions directly. And he is okay. absolutely thrilled for people to get the word out about this. Okay. Well, we will certainly try and do our part because I do think it, it just is um, It's fascinating on so many levels because really the story of the pigeons themselves is interesting and then also all 
uh, the story of Martha is interesting, and the story of people working together is interesting. So there's a lot going on here, and yeah. and uh, I I was really glad that uh, you could come on today. And I know you thought that an hour was going to be a lot, <laughs> but we have about four minutes left. So see, I was not crazy saying an hour, <laughs> but um, was there anything else about them that that you wanted to to mention that we we didn't get a chance to hit on? Yeah, uh, within the larger story, there's many uh, smaller stories of individuals, in, especially in, in local or regional areas that you know we haven't had time to talk about today. But um, it just um, it's so fascinating to dig into these tales or, or historic newspapers from your area. If you live anywhere east of the Rocky Mountains, uh, you know, go on your um, in your local library and look at historic newspapers and I almost guarantee you'll find accounts where this affected your community, your area. You may find someone like Etta Wilson who was a a Native American woman who grew up near Traverse City, Michigan, hunting pigeons with her family and and later she became a, a college professor ornithologist, one of the first women ornithologists to be employed in uh, working on preserving species. And it's just this, you know, everyday woman growing up in the country, and yet here she is. And stories like that are everywhere. You know, people who um, have made a difference somewhere in their community. And this is a living story. You know, this is this part of the conservation efforts today to bring back things like the Sandhill Crane and the Whooping Crane and the Kirtland's Warbler and you know, the bald eagle even, you know, the success stories. Um, we have to remember that um, it's not just a, a you know, depressing tale of slaughter and extinction. It's, uh, it's something that we can uh, learn about. Um, in one of those true cases where you can learn from the mistakes of the past and kind of move towards a brighter future where, where we can appreciate the things in the natural world that we have around us. Well, that sounds like an excellent note to end on. So thank <laughs> you very much for coming on today, Kyle. I appreciate it. And I thank you. Hope you. I wish you the best of luck with the project, and I hope that everybody who's listening to this will help spread the word because I think it is uh, going to be kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing for people to be involved with a project like this. That's for sure. Thank you very much, Sarah. I've really enjoyed it. You are very welcome, and uh, I want to just make sure everybody else remembers that we are going to have a program in our normal time slot uh, on Thursday, and we're going to be talking about the history of Thanksgiving and where that came from. So if you are uh, thinking that people have been hurrying a little too much to run on to Christmas, this is your chance to step back a minute and appreciate Thanksgiving and its traditions and folklore. So I hope that you will really enjoy that one. And remember that you can always call in if you have a question at the numbers I gave at the beginning of the episode. And you can download any of the episodes, Trundlebed Tales, in their podcast section. Thank you, everybody who uh, is listening today. And we will catch you next time on Trundlebed Tales. Thank <laughs> you.